Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, I'm Mark, and Bethan is AWOL this week. The naughty little minx has disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, I am of course kidding, she will be back next week. Uh, We couldn't record together unfortunately, so we could have delayed the episode, uh, but we decided to release it with just me. Um, Thank you for joining us once again, and thank you to our new Patreon supporters this week. We have Alan Kay, Amanda Wells and Denise Boyle. If you would like to be part of this growing gang of Seeing Red fanatics, then you can join in on the fun over at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Or if you can't be bothered to type all of that in, then just Google Patreon Seeing Red and you'll find us easily enough. We have three different levels of support available from just $3 a month and there's all sorts going on over there. Bonus episodes, competitions, stickers, signed scripts, the list is endless. So just head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast to support the show and to keep us going. This week we head east to Indonesia, a country that sits between the Indian and Pacific Oceans with a population of 267 million people. Our story unfolds in the capital city of Jakarta, situated on the northwest coast of Java, the world's most populous island and the financial hub of Indonesia's burgeoning economy. But before we head there, we'd like to tell you about this week's show sponsor. So, Jakarta is an upmarket city with a population of 10 million people, and it's home to 18 of Indonesia's 24 billionaires. The city is littered with upscale shopping malls and apartment complexes and it's the only place to live if you are young and successful in Indonesia. Just like 27-year-old friends Jessica Wongso and Myrna Salahin, two young women who in 2016 were living their best lives in Jakarta. The friends had first met in 2008 while studying at the exclusive Billy Blue Design College in Sydney. Then aged just 18, they'd moved to Australia to further their education at this private college, which specialises in commercial and residential interior design, amongst many other exciting subjects. The girls were both from wealthy families and had a lot in common. A shared passion for design, the same cultural background and that familiar feeling of isolation and homesickness that comes with living in a foreign country a country without the strict boundaries of Islam, which was what they had been thus far accustomed to, a country where they could embark on adventures together, away from their strict families. The two girls were close, and although Myrna was dating a man called Arif, who was also from Indonesia, but studying in Melbourne, they spent a lot of time together and their friendship blossomed. After they graduated, Myrna moved back to Indonesia with her boyfriend Arif, while Jessica remained in Sydney, later becoming an Australian resident. She secured a job there, first in the chemical industry, hold that thought for now, before later working as a graphic designer in the healthcare sector. The two friends kept in touch, and in 2014, when Myrna was holidaying in Australia, they met up at a restaurant in Sydney. They were excited to see each other, but after catching up on each other's news, things took a turn for the worse. Jessica confided in Myrna that she was in a relationship with an Australian man, 
and she didn't like what she was hearing. Now, I'm not sure why Myrna took such offence to this. Perhaps she felt that Jessica was betraying her culture by getting involved with an Australian, or maybe she thought she was turning her back on her religion, I don't know. But Myrna, who has been described by her boyfriend Arif as forthright, demanded that Jessica end the relationship at once. As I'm sure you can imagine, a heated argument ensued culminating in Jessica aggressively storming out of the restaurant. After this meeting, the pair worked to patch up their friendship, but the confrontation had affected Jessica deeply, and it led to a chain of events that would ultimately end in Myrna's murder. Myrna's boyfriend Arif has gone on record to say that Myrna would not meet with Jessica alone after this argument. Although we don't know exactly what was said, It does sound as though it was quite heated, so maybe threats were made, I don't know, but many have commented that Myrna was wary of Jessica after this, even scared. A few months later, Jessica's mental health began to deteriorate rapidly. During 2015, she was hospitalised on five separate occasions for attempting suicide. Myrna, on the other hand, was having a great time. She'd gotten engaged to a reef and was hastily planning her wedding, which was due to take place on the Paradise Isle of Bali in December of that year. Now, I don't know, but I am guessing, as is usually the case in these circumstances, that Myrna was posting this shit all over Facebook. And I'm not victim-blaming before anyone says that I am, but I do actually have some sympathy for Jessica here. Alone, depressed, thousands of miles from home, and her more beautiful friend is excitedly talking about how great her life is. And that must have been hard for Jessica. And to make matters worse, Jessica didn't get an invite to the wedding. Which I know from personal experience, as Bethan will attest to, can be hard and potentially spell the end of a friendship. Now, Bethan did invite me to her wedding, it was someone else's, but God, I moaned about it. Um, So in this case, it actually drove someone to seek revenge in the most brutal way imaginable. As the clock chimed midnight on New Year's Eve in 2015, it sounded the death knell on what had been a horrific year for Jessica. But sadly, it didn't look as though 2016 was shaping up to be much better. Just days into the new year, Jessica was fired from her position as a graphic designer at New South Wales Ambulance Service. At this point, her job had been the only thing keeping her in Australia. Consequently, she decided to return home straight away and left on a one-way ticket bound for Jakarta. And I think this was the breaking point for her. She must have been at rock bottom now, recovering from the breakdown of a relationship, suffering from severe mental ill health, losing her job. Life was not good for Jessica. And as soon as she returned, she arranged to meet with Myrna for a catch-up. Following the confrontation between the pair two years earlier, Myrna was, as I said before, wary of meeting Jessica alone. Therefore, she suggested bringing their mutual friend Hanny along. And so the trio arranged to meet on the 6th of January at a cafe called Olivier in Grand Indonesia, an upmarket shopping mall in Jakarta. And I say cafe, but this was no greasy spoon dishing up fried bread. It was high-end, 
the sort of place where they would sell food made by our show sponsor, Pastor Evangelists. So let's take you to the day of the meeting. It's 1pm on the 6th of January in 2016. Jessica texts Smyrna and Hanny asking what they'd like to drink later, insisting that it's her treat and that she would like to have the drinks waiting for them upon their arrival. A bit weird, but I know I've kind of done the same thing before myself. Not necessarily hours before meeting someone, maybe as I get to the bar and realise they're not actually there. Now, there is a question mark around the time the girls had agreed to meet at Olivier, but at exactly 3.30pm, Jessica arrives at the cafe on her own. CCTV captures her greeting the maitre d' and walking to her table. And this is all happening 105 minutes before Myrna and Hanny arrive. Now, just two minutes later, Jessica is captured on CCTV leaving the cafe. She returns 42 minutes later at 4.14pm with three shopping bags. Three bath and bodywork shopping bags. Now, at this point, had Beth and Bing recording with me, we would have no doubt had a long discussion around bath and bodyworks because we both love that store. And anytime I go to America, I always buy a shit ton of stuff from there and bring it back. And I have to say, the hand sanitizer they sell, it's so good that you can actually drink it. Well, you probably can't, but I have, and it's lovely. So if ever you're in America or somewhere that has a Bath and Body Works, please do go there and send us some pickers of what you buy. So Jessica arrives back at the cafe, and what she does next is really quite strange. On the way back to her table, she walks around the cafe, looking up at the ceiling. And she does this for a good few seconds. And she looks anxious now. It would later be claimed in court that she was looking at the positioning of CCTV cameras in relation to the positioning of her table. Just what was Jessica planning? What did she want to do at that table out of sight of prying eyes and before her friends arrived? Jessica eventually sits down at the table and places the three shopping bags down on the floor. As she sits there anxiously looking around, she notices a CCTV camera mounted on a wall opposite her. It's quite far away and she hadn't noticed it when she'd arrived back at the cafe. And it's at this point that she picks up the shopping bags and places them on the table in front of her. They are now shielding her hands and handbag from the camera that she hadn't noticed earlier the only camera in the cafe that covers that table. A few minutes pass and a waiter comes over. Jessica orders an iced coffee for Myrna and a cocktail for herself and Hanny, exactly what her friends had requested when she had texted them just hours earlier. The drinks arrive at 4.24pm. As I said, there is a question mark over the time the girls had arranged to meet. I've not been able to find anything confirming what time the girls had arranged to meet, so I'm guessing it wasn't discussed by text, maybe they'd discussed it verbally, otherwise I'm sure it would have come to light subsequently. It's important though because if they'd agreed to meet at say 4.30pm, this wouldn't look as suspicious as if they'd agreed to meet at 5pm. One of the drinks is an iced coffee, not the sort of drink you would want to leave out for half an hour or so. 
If the girls had agreed to meet at five, then this is highly suspicious. Why would you order your friends drinks more than half an hour before they were due to arrive? Unless you needed a clear window of opportunity to do something to one of the drinks before your friends turned up. So the drinks arrive and what happens next is captured on CCTV. Jessica's hands, her handbag and the drinks are now concealed by the three shopping bags that she had earlier moved from the floor where she'd originally placed them to the table. The footage is grainy as the camera is so far away but it is possible to make out Jessica moving her hands and at one point she even moves the iced coffee. At 5.16pm Myrna and Hanny arrive at the cafe. Their drinks have now been sat on the table in front of Jessica for 52 minutes. Jessica gets up to greet her friends with a warm hug. The girls take a seat and Myrna grabs her iced coffee before taking a large gulp. Immediately it becomes apparent that something is wrong. Myrna looks irritated and starts gesticulating towards her mouth, grabbing both girls' attention. She is now waving her hand over her face, as if she is suddenly overcome by heat. She pushes the coffee away and towards Hanny, telling her it doesn't taste right and she urges her to take a sip. Hanny complies and consumes a tiny amount of the iced coffee, while Jessica looks on nervously, almost like she's witnessing the inevitability of two cars about to collide. Myrna gesticulates towards Jessica now and urges her to try the drink too, but she declines. Still irritated and clearly experiencing some kind of discomfort, a couple of minutes pass and then all of a sudden, Myrna's head rolls back and she starts to convulse. The girls call for help and while Hanny attends to a clearly severely ill Myrna, Jessica just stands there, doing nothing. The manager comes over and Jessica accuses her of putting something in the iced coffee. As an ambulance races to the scene, the manager takes the coffee away, preserving what will later prove to be a vital piece of evidence. Myrna is now foaming at the mouth. A panicked Hanny calls Myrna's husband Arif and explains what's happening. At this point, Jessica stands and stares at Myrna. She doesn't look shocked. She doesn't look upset, she just stares at her blankly, drinking in the scene unfolding before her. A few minutes pass and Myrna is now on her way to a nearby hospital. But she's not going to make it. A few minutes into the journey, Myrna takes her last breath as she goes into cardiac arrest. This beautiful 27-year-old, a loving wife, sister and daughter, is now dead. Three days after Myrna's death, police confirmed the iced coffee contained a lethal dose of cyanide, and although they were still waiting for toxicology results at this point, it was looking highly likely that Myrna had died as a result of cyanide poisoning. Now, before we move on to the subsequent investigation and trial, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about cyanide because this is definitely the first murder we've covered involving this particular poison and I think it's probably the first murder we've covered involving any type of poison. I might be wrong. Um, Bethan will tell me if I'm wrong, I'm sure. So, of course, we've all heard of cyanide and we know that it's deadly, but what exactly is it and what does it do to the human body? 
Cyanide is, like all things science-based, quite complex and boring, so I will try and keep this brief. It's essentially a chemical compound consisting of a carbon atom triple bonded to a nitrogen atom. With me so far? I didn't think so. It can come in the form of a liquid, a salt or a gas, and it is found naturally in some bacteria, fungi and algae, and also in many fruits, usually in the pips and the stones. The first recorded murder by cyanide poisoning was in 1845, when prominent chemist John Tarwell murdered his mistress to stop her from exposing their affair to his wife. He was later executed and the use of cyanide grew from there. I don't think the two were related, but it was also used by Nazi Germany during the Second World War and was their preferred killing method in extermination camps during the Holocaust. And it is rumoured that some high-profile people in the security services carry capsules of hydrogen cyanide with them so if they are tortured for sensitive information they can commit suicide. So what happens when someone is exposed to cyanide at a toxic level? What would have been happening internally to Myrna as she sat in that cafe convulsing and foaming at the mouth? As we've discovered, immediately after taking a large gulp of the iced coffee, Myrna became very ill. She would have initially noticed that bitter taste, swiftly followed by a feeling of nausea and a headache and then dizziness. At this point her heart rate would have increased and she would have found it difficult to breathe. She would have been able to breathe but it would have been a struggle. She would have been very aware that she was very unwell. However, before she would have had time to panic, the poison would have coursed through her veins and up to her brain, causing neurological damage. We know that she suffered a number of seizures while still in the cafe. As Myrna was wheeled out of there on a wheelchair, she lost consciousness, and the last stage of acute toxicity of cyanide is cardiac arrest and then death, as happened to Myrna in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. It's a horrible way to die, but it is efficient. At the right dose, death is certain. Myrna's family were informed of her death and her husband of only a few weeks was understandably broken. In the days that followed, the mysterious death of a young woman from a prominent family was featured heavily in the media, where she was described as a socialite. Jessica was hounded by the press and various paparazzi photographers. From day one this story gripped the nation and as more and more information was leaked to the press over the following days and weeks, Indonesia became captivated by the story and by Jessica. And although I did describe Myrna as the more beautiful of the two earlier on, Jessica was still beautiful herself and I've got to say it as someone mentioned it over on our Facebook page the other week, she had curves in all the right places which apparently is an old fashioned term and probably quite sexist too but it made me laugh that someone thought it was funny because I thought it was just a normal way to describe someone but Actually, I don't think it is. Um, so thanks for getting in touch. I can't remember who you were, but uh, probably the last time I used that expression. I would also say at this point that I've only talked about how beautiful Myrna was and that Jessica was less beautiful because that kind of sets a bit of context around potential jealousy there on Jessica's behalf. Anyway, Jessica, as I said, was beautiful, although not as beautiful as Myrna, and she was a natural in front of the camera, and she appeared to lap up the attention. It was almost as if this was what she so craved. 
the limelight, people talking about her showing an interest. She literally couldn't help but beam when a camera was shoved in front of her face, even though her friend had died just days earlier, right before her. So, as you can imagine, suspicion was growing around Jessica's involvement in her friend's death now. As police began to delve deeper, they uncovered the concerning CCTV footage of Jessica arriving at the cafe and her subsequent suspicious behaviour. They asked around and discovered Jessica's fragile mental state. They found out about the run-in that she'd had with Myrna a couple of years before, that she'd not been invited to her wedding and also that she'd been fired from her job recently. Jessica's behaviour in the weeks following her friend's death did nothing to stop the finger of suspicion from being pointed firmly at her. She appeared to court the press and freely gave interviews to TV news stations, claiming to be sad and struggling to sleep, all the while looking fresh-faced, alert and happy. She had the air of an actress being interviewed about her latest movie role not somebody grieving the death of a close friend. And so, it wasn't long before she was arrested on suspicion of Myrna's murder. That happened on Saturday the 30th of January in 2016, just three weeks after Myrna's death at the city's Neo Hotel where Jessica had been staying since, allegedly to avoid the press attention, although I'm not sure that really worked. Jessica was charged with Myrna's murder and her trial began on the 15th of June that year and it lasted for 135 days. All of the evidence presented against her was circumstantial and just as the story of Myrna's death had gripped the nation, so too did the trial. Jessica would arrive every day with freshly blow-dried hair, perfect makeup and professionally manicured nails. And she was on remand in custody awaiting trial, so I'm not sure how she managed to look so good. She wore an array of virginal outfits, lots of white, and the whole trial was televised on not one, but two major television networks across Indonesia. It was described as a national spectacle and played out like a soap opera. For many people across Indonesia, it gave them a rare glimpse into a world they wouldn't otherwise have been privy to, a world of class privilege, money and status. Both Myrna's family and Jessica's were high profile in Indonesian society. They were extremely wealthy and had a retinue of domestic staff whose daily pay would have been approximately $4, the exact cost of an iced coffee at Olivier's. During the trial, a forensic doctor stated that he believed Myrna's death was caused by cyanide poisoning. He testified that Myrna's intestines had signs of irritation caused by a corrosive substance such as cyanide, arsenic or sulfuric acid. The inside of Myrna's mouth was also blackened, which can also be a sign of acute cyanide poisoning. The trial also heard that Olivier's had served 10 iced coffees on the day of Myrna's visit none of which had caused the type of adverse reaction that she had suffered. Furthermore, a toxicologist from the National Police's Criminal Investigation Division testified that Myrna's killer was someone who knew that cyanide only worked in low temperatures. He said this is why the poison had to be placed in an iced drink. Don't forget Jessica had worked in the chemical industry in Australia and therefore she may have had some knowledge of cyanide or at the very least of poison and chemicals in general. 
In Jessica's defence, one of her lawyers, Otto Hasborn, argued that nothing presented in court proved that Jessica was the murder. And I am inclined to agree, I'm not saying she was innocent, but in terms of what was presented at trial, none of it was hard evidence. The lawyer even accused one of the baristas at Olivier's, a man called Ranga Dwi Supporter, of being paid by Myrna's husband to kill her. The lawyer also asked if Ranga was the one who threw away the rest of the hot water in the kettle, which had been used to make Myrna's coffee. Otto, Jessica's lawyer, said the kettle might be an important and overlooked piece of evidence, as it could have been the place where the real murderer placed the cyanide. The prosecutors, led by Ardito Mawandi, told the court that Jessica apparently knew the location of the CCTV cameras in the cafe and attempted to block the view of the cameras with the three shopping bags that they said she'd strategically placed on the table. And psychologist Antonia Rati noted that Jessica's behaviour was unusual during her one-hour wait for her friends. She said that normally when someone enters a restaurant or a cafe, they place their belongings beside them, especially when the seat next to them is empty. As we know, Jessica put the bags on the table in front of her before arranging them. This wasn't normal behaviour. Countering this claim, Jessica's lawyer criticised Antonia's professional background. Antonia had graduated with a Bachelor of Psychology degree, but her Master's degree was in Management, which he took offence to. He questioned Antonia's impartiality also because she was involved in Jessica's initial interrogation, leading to the potential for a tendency to side with the police. Another expert stated that Jessica displayed, quote, suspicious movements while waiting. At 4.29pm, five minutes after the drinks had arrived, Jessica opened her handbag with two hands. The guy said, quote, she opened her bag while turning her head left and right continuously. Looking at the pixel movement, she seemed to put something on the table. Her lawyer argued that if she did put something in the coffee, it could have been sugar. At 5.23pm, when Olivier's staff were trying to help Myrna, who was convulsing violently at this point and frothing at the mouth, according to the prosecution, as I said earlier, Jessica just stood there but they claimed she was rubbing and scratching the palms of her hands at this point. The prosecution said Jessica kept scratching her hands when she picked up a handbag. A toxicologist confirmed that cyanide had a burning and itching effect on the skin. And I don't know about this, I couldn't find the CCTV footage of this, and it would have been quite grainy anyway. Perhaps it was stress, um, maybe she was wringing her hands like some people do when they're stressed or in a crisis, or maybe she had been irritated by the poison. At 5.25pm, Jessica rubbed her hands on her right thigh, and that is seen quite clearly on the CCTV and the court heard that Jessica had instructed her maid to throw away the trousers that she had worn that day. I told you they were rich. In an interview with Compass TV, Jessica's mother said the trousers had been thrown away because they were torn. Throughout the trial, in court and in the media, Jessica was portrayed as unhinged, malicious and very capable of committing murder. Psychiatrist Natalia Widasirahablala, I can't pronounce that, commented on Jessica's apparent mental health based on her reported behaviour in Australia. 
Jessica's boss at New South Wales Ambulance Service revealed that Jessica supposedly once made a statement about killing someone, saying, quote, If I wanted to kill anyone, I'd know how to do it. I could use a gun and I know the right dosage. I presume she is referring to murder by poisoning with that latter point. Jessica's colleagues said she was very upset at the breakdown of her relationship with her boyfriend Patrick, the Australian man Myrna had told her to leave, and it was revealed during the trial that one of the many suicide notes written by Jessica before her numerous suicide attempts in 2015 talked of her desperation after Patrick had left, and also of her disappointment that she did not receive emotional support from her family. A psychologist from the University of Indonesia who examined Jessica shortly after her arrest stated that she was mentally healthy. However, he mentioned that this did not mean that she was not capable of murder, arguing that the vast majority of criminals were considered to be of sound mind. So, as I said, there was no hard evidence presented during the trial. There was no CCTV footage showing Jessica pouring the cyanide into Myrna's coffee, no evidence that she'd purchased cyanide, no evidence that she had even handled the poison before Myrna's death. Jessica's lawyer said the prosecution had failed to provide a clear picture of the case in the indictment, and he questioned the medical examination results which did not specify the amount of sodium cyanide found in Myrna's body. In fact, they could not even be sure that Myrna had died as a result of cyanide poisoning. Jessica's defence argued that she may have died as a result of natural causes. The prosecution argued Jessica's motives centred around jealousy and revenge. They said she was jealous of Myrna's happy marriage, that she wanted revenge for Myrna causing the breakdown of her relationship, and also for not inviting her to her wedding. But I don't think this is much of a motive, to be honest. Sure, some people can get mad at that kind of stuff, but how many of them turn to murder? The trial was controversial from the outset, with the Australian Federal Police lobbying the Indonesian government to not impose the death penalty should Jessica be found guilty of Myrna's murder. They said they would only agree to furnish the prosecution with details of Jessica's criminal behaviour in Australia if the Indonesian government could guarantee that she would not be put to death if she was found guilty. Now, I know what you're thinking, what criminal behaviour in Australia? I thought she was a good girl. Well, during one of her suicide attempts, she crashed her car while drunk into a care home and was arrested and charged for this. So, yes, it was criminal behaviour, but there is context to it. Adding to the controversy were allegations that senior Indonesian police had refused to allow Jessica's lawyer to accompany her during questioning, thereby breaching police procedures and perhaps even the code of criminal procedure. Police denied that they forced her lawyer from the room but admitted that they had asked her lawyer to leave the room to prevent him from influencing her statement, which quite frankly is ridiculous, isn't that the whole point of having a lawyer? Notwithstanding all of this, at the end of her trial on the 27th of October in 2016, Jessica was found guilty of Myrna's murder and she was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Had it not been for the intervention of the Australian government, she may well have been sentenced to death by firing squad.
She did subsequently appeal, citing she did not have a fair trial. However, the appeal was thrown out and she is sat in jail in Indonesia as you are listening to this. But is she guilty? I'll let you decide over at our Facebook page. We'll make sure we put a post up asking you for your thoughts on this case. And I don't know, I I think she probably is guilty. I think her behaviour at the cafe was far too suspicious to uh, to kind of question it really. But I don't know, there is always that element of doubt, isn't there? So please do get in touch and let us know what you think. And I'd be really keen, Bethan, for you to let me know what you think. It's all very circumstantial, but quite often that means it passes a common sense approach. So I'm all for that. So yeah, she probably did it. Thank you for listening. As always, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also join our Facebook group, which is nearing a thousand members. So if you're not already part of that, please do head over and become a member. And don't forget, you can check us out on Patreon if you would like to throw a bit of money our way to keep the show going. And we are always so grateful when people choose to support us in this way. So it means so much to us and we can't ever really convey that in words. But do check us out, patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Um, And don't forget, head over to Pastor Evangelist and use code RED to get £10 off your first order. I genuinely loved the food so bloody much that I have become a paying customer. So what is not to love head over there and get your discount now until next time we will see you then bye